Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be on the air, and I know it wasn't that long ago that I was on the air, but I figure why not if there is a um, free opportunity or moment, uh, rather I should say, to uh, be back on the air with you all sooner than expected, uh, take advantage of it. So that's what I'm doing. Well, when I was on the air last time with you all when we were discussing Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous selection of 1800 by John Furling, we, um, it's fair to say that we learned a whole um, assortment of um, facts, or I should say, I should say statistics, that um, were um, very beneficial, uh, given that probably most of us would not have known um, the greater context of why this election, this particular election was so important um, for its time, considering that the young republic um, was not uh, 20 years old, uh, but the young republic itself was about um, just shy of 15 years old uh, going into uh, 1800. But in this uh, segment of uh, Adams versus Jefferson and the tumultuous election of 1800, we're going to be um, discussing um, more relevant information. If it weren't relevant, uh, that would uh, not be a good sign, but we are going to be discussing even more relevant information um, because now we're going to be getting into what is called uh, the balloting. And when I ended uh, the previous podcast, I know uh, that I probably told many of you all that we would probably be in for some surprises. Uh, but, of course, if I told you all those surprises now, there would be no need for me to, to go into any um, details, or I should say excessive details, about why uh, the significance of, of what's going to be shared in this podcast um, would need to be told. So uh, the good news is that um, it is fair to say that in this uh, podcast segment that we are going to um, make um, some big headwaves. But these head waves aren't going to happen overnight, but they are going to have, uh, for the most part, um, a sigh of relief. But there again, even a sigh of relief isn't something that can just happen overnight. That takes uh, time. It also takes um, perhaps some uh, heartache uh, that is not always a good thing. It could take uh, some compromising as well, and there's a good likelihood that the word compromise might be be uh, mentioned more than once in this uh, particular segment. So let's um, get ready for another fun-filled adventure of uh, learning about uh, history that has been uh, probably forgotten at times and that it needs to be uh, relearned, but it needs to be relearned in a manner that um, provides us with information um, that we did we weren't told about before and going forward we can uh, better appreciate given the uh, sacrifices that were made by um, many of our forefathers to ensure that there still remains, even to this day, government for the people and by the people, even if it has seen its share of uh, not-so-pleasant times, given uh, how um, crazy um, the modern-day world is. And I'm not trying to get political here, folks, but uh, with all that's going on in the world uh, today, uh, I don't, maybe it's a good thing that our forefathers aren't alive to see it, but 
Hey, they weren't immune from conflict and they weren't immune from chaos and uncertainty either. It's fair to say that all of that being conflict, chaos, and uncertainty has been, um, has been with mankind since the beginning of time. However, there are different degrees of it, and it, it might be fair to say that conflict, chaos, and uncertainty was not on the same level going into 1800 in terms of extreme um, like it is now. But that's just my view, and um, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go for uh, another um podcast segment to Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. So our first uh, leadoff question is the following. When the framers uh, came together in 1787 to hammer out a new governing document, what do I mean, folks, by a new governing document? The United States Constitution. So when the framers came together in 1787 to hammer out a new governing document, did they also envision an emergence of political parties. Do you think the framers um, had any envisions in their minds of political parties evolving in 1787? No. And the reason I say that is because in 1787, uh, America's framers behind uh, the United States Constitution were more focused on creating a newer style of government which could provide so much more than what the previous system, being the fledgling Articles of Confederation, had failed to establish. Okay, The Articles of Confederation pretty much gave uh, power to 13 um, entities, a.k.a. 13 states. The Articles of Confederation pretty much uh, allowed the states, being the 13 states, to run the show. In other words, each individual state had its own currency, each individual state uh, was able to conduct its own laws as to how uh, commerce was to be uh, controlled, or I should say regulated. Each state had its own laws as to how to uh, conduct business with foreign nations 3,000 miles across the ocean, like France, Spain, England. Those are the three predominant European powers. So the national government under that article's under the Articles of Confederation really is a laughing stock. Even if the national government wanted to do something, the states pretty much are going to tell the national government, um, hey, wait a minute, you're uh, encroaching on us. You're infringing upon personal liberties or you are infringing upon X, Y, and Z. Uh, that's not right. Anything above us is a threat. Well, we've learned that um, rebellions, uh, most notably that infamous Shays' rebellion, was the straw that broke the uh, camel's back, which ultimately led uh, George Washington out of retirement and other noteworthy men of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, uh, and uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, to name a few of, um, of, of what would be an eventual um, decent handful of men to come together in uh, in Philadelphia the following year to, um, to uh, with the original intent on revising the Articles of Confederation, but many knew that the Articles of Confederation, yes, it would need revisions, but it would need more than just the 101. So in 1787, yes, America's framers are very um, concerned about creating a newer style of government, And what I mean by providing more is that how about like a system of checks and balances 
where one branch of government will not overpower the other. The Articles of Confederation did not have a proper system of checks and balances. It was almost pretty much a deregulated system of government where uh, the states were distrustful of the national government and pretty much wanted to be their own independent sovereignty to where anything from above in terms of um, regulations or restrictions was seen as an all-out threat. So uh, political parties were something foreign to America's framers. And what I mean by foreign is I'm not talking about foreign country here, folks. Foreign meaning that it was just, um, it just wasn't in the picture. It wasn't something that was um, totally relevant at the moment. But I think it's fair to say that many of our um, forefathers or uh, framers behind America's uh, Constitution did have some understanding of what a political party was. But I believe it's fair to say that many of them had enough common sense to know that um, a political party would be something that would evolve in the in down the road um, in the years right after uh, the republic was um, was um, established. So, in other words, their biggest concern is uh, ensuring that they leave Philadelphia with a government with a new government in place. And that they will need that each delegate will need to go back to his respective state and sell the Constitution not only to um, convention delegates but just to everyday people. And I've said this one before, and I'd say it again. Uh, someone asked Benjamin Franklin after the uh, delegates had convened in Philadelphia. Uh, the individual said, "What kind of government are we going to be under?" Franklin said, "It's a republic." It will be a republic. He didn't say a flat-out democracy, but he said a republic. The question is, can you all keep it? In other words, can you all keep it not just short-term, but long-term? Not just for the current generation, but for future generations down the road. Uh, Franklin went, went on to say, you know, it's not the per most perfect document, but it's the best we could come up with. After all, I, I would say the Constitution was a, this new uh, Constitution is, in my opinion, it's beyond 10 times better than the Articles of Confederation. Wouldn't, wouldn't most of us or all of us want to live in a government where it wasn't so extremely uh, powerful, but it provided enough system of checks and balances to ensure that one branch was not overpowering the other? Yes, I, I would. I would want to live under a government where there is structure because unfortunately there are people who live in nations around the world where there is no government, where the thought of democracy um, doesn't even exist. Democracies are, in fact, the most fragile forms of government. And we should keep in mind that there are people who live in nations in the world where they've never experienced anything else other than a dictator. Matter of fact, dictatorships sometimes are the only ways, dic, ruling, uh, governing under a dictatorship is the only way to keep um, a nation together. And history has proven that when a, a particular dictator died, like Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia years ago during the Cold War, he predicted that when he died that uh, Yugoslavia would fall apart and, and that the Soviet Union would eventually disintegrate. And, and what do you know? It did. So... Um, sometimes, you know, you don't always get 
to choose what government you live under, but sometimes uh, it is fair to say that some people are forced to live in a government where where the only uh, way to keep the people together are means of uh, dictatorships. But thank heavens, um, our framers, the framers of America's Constitution were smart enough to realize that, hey, um, we don't need to be living under a dictator. After all, we just fought a war not long ago to keep um, tyrants out, off our soil, being that of, uh, par- not Parliament, but uh, King George III in his... Um, and his um, injustices uh, in terms of, um, in our eyes, what would have been abuses of power. So, yes, um, the idea of political parties was something foreign to America's framers, given that um, political parties themselves would come about after the Constitution itself had been ratified by the states. But the framers never envisioned anything chaotic Listen to this. They never envisioned anything chaotic such as two candidates from the same party in a deadlock over the same electoral electoral vote count total. So remember, they had it in mind where, you know, two candidates from um, from one party or from from two opposing parties would um, would be uh, selected and uh, the um, electors from each state would be able to vote for up to two candidates. With the um, with the hopes that um, one of those two candidates would emerge as the winner, and the runner-up with the second most votes would be uh, the vice president. But never did they imagine, in a, within uh, less than fifteen years later, that we are now in a crisis. We have two candidates from from one party who are uh, who, in our eyes, can be seen as the winners, but only one person can be president. Had the framers of the Constitution devised a game plan or strategy for encountering an electoral vote uh, tie between two presidential candidates? Well, the good news to report is that they did. The framers noted in the Constitution that should more than one candidate, more than one, okay, being two folks, more than one candidate have equal number of votes, that is electoral votes, that it would be taken up by the House of Representatives to proceed um, in working um, towards resolving the matter, but at the same time, it would also have to require participation by the states. Why the states? Well, um, you know, this is not a matter that just would impact um, Congress as an individual body. You know, um, we have elected officials who represent um who represent not just the states from a state level, but also at the national level. I mean, people from from their uh, respective states do um, choose House of Representative members to serve them um, in Congress, and the state legislatures, let's keep in mind, in the early years of the Republic up until the start of the 20th century, uh, the state legislatures are the ones that uh, elect uh, the U.S. senators from each state. So this, is, this needs to be seen as a joint effort here. The states were required to be equal in the House's balloting, meaning that each state, regardless of size, got one vote. When I uh, learned about this in this book, when I first read it, 
when I re when I uh, read that wording where it said that each state, regardless of size, got one vote, it almost reminded me of um, during the Constitutional Convention that there were those from the smaller states who were worried that the bigger states would get all the say and would control everything, and so some of the uh, represent some of the delegates. Um, came up with from the smaller states envisioned what was called the New Jersey uh, plan, which was uh, where each state, regardless of size, got one vote. So in other words, Virginia being the largest of the of the states would have uh, the same um, vote as a smaller state like uh, New Jersey or Delaware. But thank heavens that uh, Roger Sherman of Connecticut was smart enough to come up with the great compromise where um each state, regardless of its size, got two U.S. senators, or got two senators, and that um, representation was based upon uh, population. So in other words, uh, in 1800, uh, Virginia has 21 electoral votes. That means 19 congressional districts and two senators. So, and then you've got um, Maryland with uh, eight congressional districts and two senators. So the bottom line is, Thank heavens we have that great compromise in play where um, where the states, you know, regardless of their size, still have equal say. But given that we are in a different circumstance here, that um, that each state, regardless of size, will get one vote. But it, it's not the same thing, but it's a totally different occasion um, based upon what the framers um, didn't envision um, back in 1787. Like I said earlier, they did not envision that there would ever be a deadlock. So in 1800, uh, the Federalist Party, of course, we've just had these elections, uh, you know, congressional elections as well, and of course the Federalist Party has been defeated in both houses, but a new session of Congress won't take place until March 4th, um, not to get ahead of the game, but let's keep this in mind. So the Federalists still have um, power. They hold a 22-seat 22 majority in the House, being 64 to 42. And uh, if each state, that is all 16 states, remember 16 states in 1800, folks? If each state, being all 16 states, voted without none abstaining, then the votes from nine states would be enough to get a president elected. So in other words, if, if, the, if all 16 states uh, voted without none abstaining, meaning no one, that everybody voted, they, they, nobody ref, refrained themselves from not, from not uh, being a part of the, um, of the uh, process, then nine out of 16 states would be enough of a majority to uh, get a, a new president elected. So the Republicans have a majority of state delegations being eight, whereas the Federalists have six. And there are two states, being Maryland and Vermont, that are deadlocked. This, uh, the states of Maryland and Vermont are going to be very uh, important, and we're going to learn more about them because uh, I'm beginning to think those two states could be the biggest uh, difference maker here. Uh, we know that the states of New, New York, it should be noted that uh, which eight um, states, rather I should tell you all, uh, 
made up uh, the Republican delegation. Were there any up north? Yes, uh, New York, that was the furthest north. Any from the uh, middle, col middle states? Uh, two, uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And um, what about uh, from the south? Yes, um, you have Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and yes, Kentucky and Tennessee are the two most western of the 16 states. They are still considered to, to a degree being southern states. So those are your eight um, states that are, um, that are comprised of Republican delegations. As for the uh, six uh, states that are comprised of uh, Federalist delegations, is it fair to say that um, all of those states, that the majority of those states are up, in, uh, up north in the New England region? Yes. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut. And there's only one middle state, Delaware. And there is a southern state as well, too. South Carolina. Is it fair to say that maybe the Pinckney family in South Carolina could have had something to do with ensuring that the majority, uh, the majority, or if not all, of the delegates in South Carolina were of the fed from Federalist ranks? I, I think it's fair to say. I, I don't have the answer to that one, but it could be possible that maybe the Pinckneys, given how powerful of a family they were, and so many of them were Federalists, with the exception of the one uh, who probably would have been considered the black sheep of his family, uh, being Charles Pinckney. Uh, but even yes, even in politics, it's fair to say that uh, well-known political families might have a black sheep or two based upon their political ideologies or uh, beliefs. But let's talk a little bit more about Maryland and Vermont here. Maryland had 10 electoral votes. And why are these electoral, it's not so much the electoral votes, but what makes Maryland so unique? Well, let me ask you this, true or false, are the majority of Maryland's congressmen Federalists? What do you all think, true or false? The answer is true. How many of um, Maryland's eight congressmen are Federalists? I'll give you a number. It's between um, five and seven. The answer is five. Five out of Maryland's eight congressmen are Federalists. So that leaves the other three uh, congressmen being Republicans. However, um, there is a unique twist of fate here. One out of the five Federalists going into this deadlock is going to lean towards voting for Jefferson. So that means now that <laughs> there's a, a split Okay, that now means that four congressmen being Federalists are, four congressmen in Maryland being Federalists, and you got the other four now Republicans. So that's definitely a um, split there still. Whereas, um, yes, yeah, so we got four, four um, delegates in Maryland, uh, four congressmen in Maryland for Jefferson. The other four are for Aaron Burr. In Vermont, you've got, there's only a total of four electoral votes, so, you know, two senators and two um, House representatives in Vermont. But Vermont is split. You've got a Federalist representative voting for Aaron Burr, and you've got a Republican representative going with Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, that's definitely a deadlock right there. So, uh, besides... Um, 
a new Congress uh, convening on March the 4th of 1801. Of course, we haven't gotten there yet, but we just need to understand why March 4th, 1801 is important. Well, it's the day of inauguration, presidential inauguration, I should say, and Congress still has a lot of unfinished business um, prior to um, the presidential inauguration, that is, getting this deadlock resolved between the middle of December and early March. So they've got two and a half months. I would think that that Congress could get this matter resolved in a reasonable time, but even time itself um, has a funny way of um, of uh, resolving uh, issues regardless of their scope. If Congress, in this case I should say the House, could not select a new president before or by 12 o'clock on March the 4th of 1801, America would not have a commander-in-chief for nine months creating an even bigger crisis. So can you imagine now that, can you imagine if Congress could not select a new president before or by 12 o'clock in a two and a half month span? Is it fair to say that the Republic is in greater jeopardy than it was, say, the day George Washington became president? Why do you, I mean, why do you think the Republic might have been in jeopardy the day Washington became president back in 1789? Well, I say that because there were many who, who were still somewhat uh, worried about how the government was going to run on a day-to-day operation. In other words, uh, from a previous podcast, uh, when George Washington became president, America did not have a surplus. America was in the red. Deficits. $76 million war deficit uh, from the American Revolutionary War. We've got to pay large sums of money back to France. You know, France lent us money, lent us an assortment of supplies, uh, which was very nice. But you have to remember, none of that's free. You've got to find a way to pay it back. So, yes, they were able to work through all that, but but there again, we didn't expect uh, nearly 12 years later that we would now be in a crisis over whether or not um, a new president was going to be elected. And it is fair to say that we have a divided Congress in um, late 1800 going into 1801. And with the Federalists in control of Congress, are they... Um, Willing to be flexible? No, because they're in no mood to relinquish their power, a.k.a. their majority. Is it fair to say that maybe the Federalists, if, they, if they're not careful, they might decide to uh, manipulate the system just so that they could still have it their way? Perhaps so. Is, that fair, is it fair to say that that, that is an uh, undemo- undemocratic way of... Uh, getting a complicated matter resolved? Uh, Yes, it is. Mid-December of 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson um, wrote a private letter to Aaron Burr advising him that if he were to accept the vice president post, that Jefferson would, uh, would provide him with more responsibilities. Okay? Jefferson's not trying to bribe Burr but he is looking for a way to modify this problem so that the crisis doesn't um, expand to where um, no resolution uh, can be um, achieved. However, Aaron Burr wrote Jefferson back, thanking him for the offer, 
but insisted that the matter over the electoral vote deadlock be resolved within the doors of Congress instead of outsiders. In other words, Aaron Burr didn't feel that, you know, as much as he appreciated Jefferson's offer, he was he may have had reasons to believe that perhaps a, a third party could have persuaded Jefferson to have written the letter and also persuaded Jefferson to have um, provided Burr with an option. So, you know, yes, we've got a crisis, but but we've got to be able to work this on our own without getting a third party resolved. You know, there's nothing wrong with third parties, but sometimes, depending on the matter at hand, it may not always be necessary to go down the road go down the road with a third party. Now, um, in the early years of the Republic, did we have uh, what was called a Speaker of the House? Yes. We did. Was there such a thing as a House Majority Leader or a House Minority Leader? Uh, believe it or not, uh, that did not exist. As a matter of fact, a House Majority Leader as well as Minority Leaders, those uh, positions did not evolve until um, sometime after the Civil War ended. Not to get far ahead, but for those of you who are just curious to know, uh, when um, House Majority Leaders or uh, Minority Leader positions came about, those did not evolve until um, late 19th century after the uh, Civil War and uh, Reconstruction, I should say. So who was uh, the Speaker of the House uh, at this time? His name was Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts and a very, very good friend of uh, John Adams's. And I even learned, too, um, I did some research on Theodore Sedgwick. There is an actress uh, named Kira Sedgwick. It turns out that Kira Sedgwick's great, 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 great grandfather from four generations removed was none other than Mr. Theodore Sedgwick. I don't know why I um, looked into that, but as soon as I heard the last name of Sedgwick, I thought, wouldn't it be something if uh, Kira Sedgwick was related to this fella? And it turns out um, she is. And uh, good actress. Uh, matter of fact, she and Kevin Bacon um, have been married for um, a number of years. Probably one of the very few Hollywood couples that have um, had a long, uh, successful marriage. Uh, sorry, I know I'm not trying to get off track, but hey, you never know about these connections sometimes. I mean, it is you know, a small world, to say the least. Now, who does Theodore Sedgwick like? Does he like Aaron Burr or Thomas Jefferson? He prefers Aaron Burr. Why, why does he prefer Aaron Burr over Jefferson? Well, Theodore Sedgwick prefers Aaron Burr on the grounds that uh, Mr. Burr himself was more supportive behind the need for a strong national government, which included uh, mercantile interests geared towards preserving strong commercial ties with England. Mr. Sedgwick uh, believes that Tom, if Thomas Jefferson is president, that, Tom, that Jefferson would be more inclined to, um, to strip, or rather I should say, uh, reduce the um, current uh, state of uh, commercial ties with England and instead focus on um, having more of a commercial tie business to France, given that Jefferson uh, is more of a um, pro-French uh, style uh, individual based upon uh, what took place in France during the uh, French Revolution. So it, I will have to admit that uh, Mr. Uh, Theodore Sedgwick uh, does not like Thomas Jefferson at all. 
he probably has more of a, a resentment towards Jefferson than um, than John Adams, and and also more of a resentment uh, versus the person that we're going to be talking about here in a moment. Uh, let me ask you this: true or false? Um, you know, yes, Alexander Hamilton. Well, before I say true or false, uh, you know, I know Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had a very um, fractious relationship uh, in working under uh, George Washington. But if Alexander Hamilton uh, had to choose someone to be the next president, who do you think that would be? So here, so here's how I will ask it in terms of a true-false um, question. True or false, does Alexander Hamilton support Thomas Jefferson as the next president. True. Why would Alexander Hamilton see his one-time nemesis as a better uh, fit? Well, Mr. Hamilton saw uh, Jefferson as someone whom wasn't overly ambitious. In other words, Jefferson wanted to uh, be president, but he did not um, flaunt his ambitions. Interesting, coming from Hamilton, who appeared to not have any boundaries. But at the same time, Hamilton is probably also thinking about what's better for the country uh, long term. Apparently, Mr. Burr does not have a lot of uh, boundaries. When it came to uh, many of matters political related, Alexander Hamilton sees uh, Aaron Burr as someone who is deceitful cunning, manipulative, one who um, would be um, a liar. I know that doesn't sound nice, but if Alexander Hamilton believes this, then he might have, um, we have to give him uh, some form of uh, credit for, um, for being um, observant uh, or for being very observant uh, with regards to uh, Mr. Burr's behaviors. But as for uh, Mr. Jefferson, uh, Alexander Hamilton did not see um, Jefferson as one who is deceitful. As a matter of fact, he even saw Jefferson as one whom had the ability to control his emotions, along with being committed to everything democratic. Although Jefferson was more aligned with France, he didn't allow his French ideals to become so extreme to where it would have posed a threat to America's republic. So in other words... Thomas Jefferson did not uh, fall into that Jacobin category. And uh, for those of you who were with me when we discussed uh, Harlow Giles Unger's um, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence, the Jacobins did not want to have anything to do with the moderates. They pretty much saw the moderates as a threat because the moderates were you know, willing to make compromises on both sides and Unfortunately, the Jacobins thought it was okay to jail everybody who was a moderate or let alone execute them. So the bottom line is Alexander Hamilton knows that Thomas Jefferson is not a, the equivalent of a Jacobin. It might be fair to say that uh, Hamilton might see Jefferson as someone who does have the potential to be um, a moderate. Maybe conservative moderate, but someone, or I don't know, I, really I think it's fair to say at this point uh, a moderate. Now, did uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton compromise on something um, 
in the early years of America's Republic when George Washington was president? Yes, they did. It happened, it came about with the uh, Residence Act from 1790. That was the uh, legislation that um, gave, um, that relocated the uh, capital, that is America's capital from New York to Philadelphia. And then over the next 10 years from 1790 to 18, and between 1790 and before 1800 ended, that America's capital would be in Philadelphia. But Jefferson had worked with Hamilton by compromising on a new government location. And that new government location being uh, Washington, D.C. Come 1800, for the new government location, but in return for Hamilton's establishment of a national bank. Ah, national bank. Hamilton knew Jefferson was one that had a better chance of um, standing towards middle ground, unlike Burr, who, unlike Mr. Aaron Burr, who was very one-sided. So I think we do have to give um, Alexander Hamilton some credit here. Yes, he might have um, flaws of his own. Yes, he might be very um, unpredictable. Yes, he might find fault with people for all the wrong reasons. But uh, right here at this exact moment in time, I do have to give uh, Mr. Hamilton credit for, um, for coming to his senses and realizing that Mr. Jefferson isn't as um, bad of a uh, politician as many would like for him to think, as many out there would like to believe he is. Now, 1800 is also unique because it's not so much for a, a political election, but in Virginia, something else was about to take place, but in the end, it didn't. Uh, it turns out that the ins that an insurrection was going to take place, and it, it was going to be a slave uprising. From what I know about this um, event, I've... I haven't read a whole lot about it, but I know um, basic information that it, uh, the event was titled uh, Gabriel's um, Rebellion because the lead uh, conspirator was a um, was an enslaved man named Gabriel. Uh, the event was to take place um, around uh, Henrico County uh, with present-day Richmond, Virginia, but it turns out that, um, that about one or two slaves thwarted the um, plot they were originally going to be in take part of the, in the plot but they uh, had last minute um, d had last minute what we call thoughts on it and reported the uh, matter either to their masters or to um, the proper authorities so the reason why this uh, event I'm mentioning about this was because that there were some uh, southern Republicans whom personally felt that Federalists were behind this uh, potential insurrection and that the Federalists had armed the slaves with provisions for militia posts. It, it turns out that the, um, that the assumption that the Federalists had armed the slaves was false. But the assumption was based upon rumors of a conspiracy to assassinate Thomas Jefferson. So let's keep in mind, folks, that even at the start of the 19th century, times weren't peaceful. And even on the political level, at a time when we're trying to um, find out who's going to be our next Amer our next president, just to ensure that um, we have a commander-in-chief, 
and not knowing if government's going to function, uh, still be able to function within uh, the next two and a half months. Yeah, th there's a lot at stake here. And uh, people will say anything for attention. What's important come February 11th, 1801? Well, it turns out there is a second election day. Why a second election day? Because it's the date for which the electoral ballots got officially opened and counted by Congress. I thought we already knew uh, the votes. Well, we do, but Congress still has a job to do. So the time frame between February 11th and March 4th of 1801 is not a very long window, folks. It's, there's a three-week span. So three weeks now. We've got to get this uh, matter resolved. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, but we've got to get it resolved. So the deadlock between Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson is still intact. The Electoral College ballots went to the Senate chamber. Who's going to be... Um, going over the ballots. In other words, who's going to be reading aloud each state's votes along with the final vote tally? None other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson, who is still our vice president. Can't imagine uh, being in Mr. Jefferson's shoes at this time, um, reading aloud each state's votes, including the final vote tally. But somebody has to do it. Once the totals were read aloud by Jefferson, the House members immediately went to their chamber. Here's where the exciting stuff is going to come, folks. So let's be prepared. So February 11th, the House of Representatives wastes no time in beginning to uh, go about doing their business by voting right away. Each congressman had limited time for ballot completion, including vote tallying. So in other words, Let's, let's picture this, folks. Okay, our congressmen aren't going to be talking to one another and saying, oh, how is your family doing? Or, um, you know, you might say, how's your family doing, but you're not going to be able to have a 15-minute conversation on it. You've got to be very, very focused on what's at stake here, the future of your country. So you're not going to have time to um, catch up on other news. I mean, you've got to, um, you've got to get it right. You would think that maybe it would only require um, one or two rounds at most, but let's find out here, folks. Let's find this out here. Now, um, eight states went for Thomas Jefferson, six for Burr. Maryland and Vermont are still deadlocked. Okay, so it sounds like um, maybe we didn't get it right the first time. Is that a bad thing? Uh, no, but we've got, um, we've got a lot of people who are very set in their own ways here in terms of how they're going to vote and how they don't want to vote. The only state that uh, voted for, well, Aaron Burr um, got six um, state delegations, but it turns out that South Carolina was the only one of those six which voted for, for Mr. Burr, went about giving him electoral votes. Maryland and Vermont's delegations at a standstill. And believe it or not, folks, Thomas Jefferson's only one vote shy from victory, but yet it's a standstill. The suspense keeps on unfolding, folks. At 6 p.m. on February the 11th of 1801, five hours after the first round of voting began, 
15 more ballots were taken, folks, with no officially declared winner. 15 ballots. That, to me, is like a, it's like a marathon here. A marathon that usually we think of as like 24-hour event or a 24, well, maybe a telethon, but it's like the equivalent of a telethon. You, you, you have to wonder at some point, what, what is the objective out of this? So they go into the wee hours of the night, and uh, four more rounds commence to where there is still not a winner. So 19 ballots have been uh, casted and no winner. Would balloting continue for three straight consecutive days in the House of Representatives from February 12th to the 14th? Yes. Come Saturday, February 14th of 1801, the House went on to cast... Um, 33 ballots. 14 were from uh, the 12th to the 14th. So 33 ballots total from uh, the 11th to the 14th, and still there is no clear winner. This is, um, this is uh, I don't know how to say it, but it's uh, what we would call uh, drama at its height, at its highest. Did warnings and threats become more prevalent uh, prior to and just after February 11th, 1801, given how difficult many Federalists had become with the matter before them? Yes. Uh, I, I should say yes, because rumors uh, began to circulate, most notably in Virginia, and believe it or not, one rumor had it that if Thomas Jefferson was not elected president, that Virginia would secede from the Union. You know, whenever I used to think of secession years ago, I used to think of civil war, but we should be reminded that uh, secession is was something that um, had been talked about at various times in America's uh, early history, well before um, well before that infamous uh, United States Civil War um, occurred. So Virginia, there were many in Virginia who thought about seceding from the Union if Jefferson wasn't elected. And then there were some Republicans demanding for another constitutional convention, requesting government reform be done to prevent anything similar from what was already taking place in, in the present state. And hey, you can't blame them for that. The only problem, though, is that if you want to call on another constitutional convention, um, who's to say that... Um, that the new Constitution would be any better than what's already in place. Remember, um, <laughs> remember what Benjamin Franklin said? It's a republic. The question is, can you keep it? It may not be the most perfect document, but it's the best we could come up with. When it was uh, ratified by the states um, in late 1787 into um, 1789, of course, Rhode Island was that holdout in 1790, you know, yes, there were those who didn't feel, who questioned it, but in the end they went along with it because they knew that they had no other choice but to accept it for what it was because it was better than having no, than no constitution because without any constitution, you don't have any kind of government to um, live under. You have anarchy, and, and I don't think any, if any of us are smart enough, we would not want to be living under anarchy. So, and then uh, you had James Monroe, who was Virginia's governor. He uh, requested placing the Virginia legislature on hold if Jefferson got denied office of presidency. I think Virginia has a lot to be concerned about, given she's the largest of all the states. 
given that her territory goes all the way into Ohio and West Virginia and even into Indiana, Illinois, I mean, there's a lot at stake for Virginia. I mean, there's a lot at stake for everybody, but I would think, but I can definitely understand about Virginia. Uh, when are we going to get a breakthrough, folks? I've got good news to report. We will. When did the first break in the electoral deadlock occur? Shortly after the uh, final ballot had been taken on Saturday, February the 14th, a fellow congressman from Delaware, being Mr. James Bayard, or Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D, and he was a Federalist. He wanted a way out to where a true winner would emerge. Okay? It might be fair to say by now that there are many in Congress who want to resolution and they know that government needs to um, that government uh, for the people and by the people still needs to be um, in existence they they want they want um, the republic to um, succeed they want the republic to still be able to um, have uh, survived a, a, a crisis like this one given that uh, the framers to America's constitution never envisioned this but hey we want to come out um, victorious, but by doing so in the right way. So anyways, yes, um, Mr. Bayard seeks out John Nicholas, a member of the Virginia House delegation who is a Republican and a close ally to Vice President Thomas Jefferson. Now, um, around uh, February 16th of 1801, Mr. Bayard removed himself from voting through the consent of um, House Speaker Theodore Sedgwick. Mr. Bayard did not want the Republic to fall apart, and he felt that Thomas Jefferson was the right man to lead the nation out of the current mess. Mr. Bayard, or I should say Congressman Bayard, saw Jefferson as a uniter, not a divider. I think he had his reasons to believe that if Aaron Burr were president, he would be more of a divider versus being the uniter. But ironically, the day before, um, being the 15th, a firestorm went off within the Federalist camp because House Speaker uh, Mr. Sedgwick, I mean, it was his duty to let uh, members of the Federalist uh, Party know that their fellow colleague, Mr. Um, Representative Bayard, was not going to participate furthermore. And this angered a lot of Federalists. They shouted out the following, Traitor! Traitor! Yeah, you, that tells us right there that they're not happy. They feel as though Mr. Bayard uh, betrayed them. Monday, February 18th, 1801, the House of Representatives con convened again and balloted two more times, 34 and vote 35. No official winner in two weeks to Election Day of March 4th. Well, what takes place the day before on the 17th of 1801? Okay. What took place uh, the day before? Well, actually, I take it back. What, well, what was about to take place um, shortly after? Let me uh, rephrase that. The 36th ballot uh, was casted, but it was different from all others. Is it fair to say that we might be um, we might be um, 
entering into what's called one giant step for mankind? I think it's very, very likely. For starters, uh, Delaware did not vote, which actually benefited Jefferson. Secondly, no, Federalist, uh, no, no Federalists from the states of Maryland, Vermont, and South Carolina, none, casted their votes, which enabled Vermont and Maryland to enter onto Jefferson's side. Third, like Delaware, South Carolina abstained from voting altogether, leaving Jefferson with ten states to Aaron Burr's four. And what were those four states? If South Carolina and Delaware are, uh, have abstained altogether, and Maryland and Vermont have joined um, the other uh, states of Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, which four states were left in Aaron Burr's camp? Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, all of New England. Thomas Jefferson, folks, breaking news. Thomas Jefferson has won the presidency. But how do you think he won the presidency? Was it because of all of the balloting on the 36th ballot? That's part of it. He won the presidency largely through compromising. How did he compromise? Well, there was uh, behind-the-scenes work. In other words, Jefferson had met with uh, Congressman uh, James Bayard, as well as another congressman from Maryland. He also met with that um, member of um, Mr. John Nicholas from uh, Virginia. Jefferson met with both uh, Republicans and Federalists, probably more, more so Federalists, and he, and he compromised with the Federalists, by agreeing to not abolish the Bank of the United States, being Mr. Hamilton's uh, prized, um, uh, what do you call it, prized um, solution uh, from the time when he was a uh, Treasury Secretary. Jefferson also agreed to not remove Federalist office holders from their posts, most notably of, of uh, customs officials and collectors. Jefferson might not have been the biggest fan behind many uh, Federalist principles when it came to governing, but at a time of crisis, he put aside all things personal to secure America's future, given a political revolution had unfolded without any form of governmental overthrow. So folks, our government is going to survive. It survived, it survived another test. I mean, you know, yes, there were people who thought when George Washington became president that, yes, we had, a, we had some flicker of hope, but many wondered if government was going to be able to do the most simplest of tasks, and it was able to. Uh, government was able to raise taxes. Yes, there were those who objected to it. Government was able to institute a Bill of Rights, the first Ten Amendments, but now, um, as a new century has begun, we uh, survived an ordeal that, that we never thought would have happened, but it did. And Thomas Jefferson put politics aside for the good of, uh, for the good of America, and he compromised when probably few others would have. And to uh, secure America's future, 
knowing that a political revolution had already unfolded, given that uh, his party had won both houses of Congress, and that a transfer of power, which I will mention again uh, in the next podcast segment, that an eventual transfer of power will be taking place, and this time it will be from one party to the other, but it will be done so without any form of uh, government overthrow. Well, thank you for your uh, time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again when I'm on uh, the next go around. And when we are on the air next, we will talk about uh, Mr. Jefferson's inauguration. I wonder if it will be the same kind of inauguration that we have seen um, from so many uh, times past. In other words, will there be parade floats where there are there going to be um, are there going to be the same kinds of uh, modern day conveniences like do you think I mean I guess I should ask right now do you think that when Thomas Jefferson gets sworn in that he will be uh, brought in on a chariot very unlikely but let's keep in mind that of course in today's time uh, when the transfer of power happens that uh, that uh, the president elect rides in a limousine. So uh, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Take care for now.